This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Ten years ago, give or take, we all know what happened in Caledonia. Certainly the folks out in Caledonia know what happened out in Caledonia with the protests and everything else. Uh, at that time, shortly after that whole protest came to an end, Christy Blatchford, who is an outstanding columnist with the National Post, wrote a book called Helpless, Caledonia's Nightmare of Fear and Anarchy and How the Law Failed All of Us. I didn't know that we were going to be having Christy back on to talk about Caledonia all over again, but um, here we are, Christy. Thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Thanks for having me in for the kind words. Well, uh, 10 years ago, as I say, it was about a decade ago, give or take, you were writing extensively about Caledonia, first for the paper, but also for the book. Um, You shocked that you're back writing about this again? No, I'm not shocked. I'm a little horrified, though, um, because it's as though really nothing's changed. This particular protest seems to be very different uh, by its nature. It's an an internal squabble between the traditional chiefs and the elected council over who actually will control the birch lands, which is uh, what what it's about. Um, And it doesn't really involve the town or anybody in the town. And yet the, you know, the first course of action is always to do for all of us, not, not just in this case, is always to do what's easy and what you know will work. And what's easy and what works is to block Argyle Street in California. I mean, in Caledonia. <laughs> and, you, and you know that, you know, the police aren't going to ask you to leave. It's illegal to block a road, of course. But the, the OPP is not going to interfere and you will be able to carry on your protest uh, until you decide uh, either that you've won or that it's over. Uh, and I find that really disheartening. As indeed uh, I do, the the sense I have that nobody beyond the people in Caledonia and uh, their MPP, Toby Barrett, and a handful of others really gives a damn about what happened then or what happens now. Well, your book, and again, I, if anyone hasn't read it and lives in this area, boy, they should. Again, it's called um, Helpless, Caledonia's Nightmare of Fear and Anarchy. Um, your book went into great detail about how about the policing, or I guess better, the lack of policing often that happened during the last protest. Before we get into what's happening now or what could happen now, what lessons do you believe should have been learned from that last experience? Once they were able to step back because it was everything had cooled down and you can look at this from a distance and reevaluate the decisions that were made and not, what should have been learned from that? Um, I think the only lesson that was learned was learned by the... Uh indigenous protesters who learned that uh, they can, you know, within some reason, I guess there were some limits on it. I can't think of what they were, but, uh, you know, that they can do what they like. Uh, What lessons should have been learned, I think, was that appeasement uh, is unfair to somebody in the end, that the rule of law is meant to apply equally to everyone, whether indigenous or not. and that it doesn't do anybody any favors to, uh, you know, for the police to act as observers. The police are there, are, are meant to be more than kind of impartial referees. Uh, not that they were terribly impartial in Caledonia anyway, but they're meant to do more than that. They're meant to enforce the law. And they didn't do that in, in the first instance. And it, obviously, they're not going to do it in the second because they've said as much. They said our job is to keep the peace and, you know, make sure everybody's safe. Well, that's all well and good, but it ignores the fundamental fact that the road is being illegally blocked. And I would venture to say that if you decided to block a road 
in your neighborhood with uh, part of a torn down hydro tower and didn't let traffic through, that you would very soon have a police officer on your front door saying, what are you doing? Well, we saw that. Did we not see that a couple weeks ago or last weekend with the motorcycle protests on the 401? Yes, exactly. Uh, You know, the the same police force, the OPP, was very keen on finding out who these motorcyclists were. You can't just go and, you know, drive on public highways the way you wish to. Um, So, uh, you know, nothing was learned from Caledonia except that, you know, a craven government learned that if it isn't affecting many people directly, the great majority of people won't care. And that's what they learned. Do you believe that this whole situation would have and would be handled differently if this wasn't happening in Caledonia, which is for most people in the province out of sight, out of mind, it's a small town on the outskirts. If this was happening in downtown Toronto, if if people were protesting and had dragged something across Young Street, would this be handled differently? I would hope so, yes, um, though I do remember when there were Tamil protests, uh, I don't know, probably it was a number of years ago now, and at one point the protesters, who were very peaceful, by the way, um, walked onto the Gardner Expressway. They got on a ramp, and up until they did that, they were allowed free reign pretty much to conduct their protests as they wished. They were peaceful, but when they... Um, got on this ramp and put themselves in potentially a great deal of danger, then the police chief of the day, who was Bill Blair, um, sent emissaries down and talked them off, and everybody went home, and it all ended just fine. So I think it it always has very much depended in this country, I think, at least in Ontario, who's doing the protesting and what the cause is, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that if they if Indigenous people in Toronto blocked Young Street, I'm not absolutely certain that they would not be that they would be stopped. I, I don't know the, the answer to that. And I, I should say too uh, that many of the frontline OPP officers, I, I know you know this, but I don't want to be seen as criticizing them particularly. It's a paramilitary organization, any police force is, and I think many of the OPP officers, particularly those who live in the Hamilton or Caledonia area, felt very badly about the kind of directives they were getting and the kind of policing they were doing. It was very much a higher-up decision, uh, you know, made by the powers that be of the day, and that was Julian Fantino, and uh, under him, I think the deputy was Chris Lewis, who later went on to become the OPP commissioner himself. I'm sure you've heard this more than a million times because whenever this comes up and the the discussion is, well, why would the police not get involved? Why was the decision made in the first place and maybe now not to do anything? Uh, The answer I always hear, and tell me if you heard something different, the answer I always hear is if you get involved, if you were to make some arrests and clear it, you're going to exacerbate and inflame the situation and suddenly you're going to have far more protesters and this thing is going to get way out of hand. Is Is that generally the accepted defense position for why you don't do anything? Yeah, I think the accepted wisdom, as was shown in Caledonia, the OPP ultimately finally executed uh, a raid on the Douglas Creek estate property, as you'll remember, but it was a very poorly planned, uh, designed to fail raid, and they were successfully driven off uh, the, the land by Native occupiers who had come from all over Ontario. And the traditional wisdom, I think, is the lesson of Ipperwash, which is that if the police actually get involved and act like policemen, um, there will be 
chaos and perhaps death. You'll recall uh, Dudley George, George yep. was killed in Ipperwash, and the Ipperwash inquiry was wrapping up even as the Caledonia occupation began, and the provincial government was terrified of a repeat, and properly so. But I don't think anybody wanted the OPP in Caledonia to go in with clubs swinging and start bashing heads. That was never, I don't think, what anybody wanted. There's there's a happy medium, surely, between letting lawlessness go unchecked and, you know, going in in full force with billy clubs. Uh, you know, you you don't have to go to extremes. I think you can enforce the law in a reasonable way, or you should at least try. I mean, remember there was that whole, I think it was at least for a month, on the sixth line, which is one of the roads bordering the old Douglas Creek estates, where there was virtually no policing at all. And the residents who lived there had to, were issued native passports. Yes. And had to show passports, illegal, unofficial passports to even come and go from their own property. It was egregious. It shouldn't happen anywhere in this country. Is it racist for people, though, to say they believe the protest should be shut down? I've heard that, too. Listen, this is a, the government has screwed over the Indigenous people, therefore they should have the right to do this, and if you suggest otherwise, you are racist. No, of course, it, it is a, it, it's a ridiculous thing to say, because you can have all sorts of principled objections based on either the rule of law or even-handed policing or whatever it might be uh, that you genuinely believe and not be a racist. Uh, I mean, I certainly heard a lot of that tossed at me myself back then, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't think one thing follows the other. Where do you, we've just got a couple of minutes left, but where you mentioned about Julian Fantino, where did you, or where do you even to this point, lay, point the finger of blame in this one? Or are there many, many fingers of blame to be pointed? For what happened well, and potentially what could happen again, depending how long this thing drags out. Yeah, I hope it doesn't happen again. Uh, of course uh, not. I, I, yeah, and I certainly hope, I, like most people, uh, like all people, I assume, I don't want anybody to get hurt. That's that's not what I'm advocating uh, at all. Um, but I, I think the blame is, is shared among um, the provincial government of the day, the liberal government of Dalton McGinty, um, to a lesser degree, because they weren't as intimately involved, probably the feds, and that was the Stephen Harper government of the day, and their equivalents now, um, but also with the uh, senior brass of the Ontario Provincial Police, who I think, for reasons that I will never understand, starting with Glenn Boniface, who was the commissioner when it began, moving on to Julian Fantino, who was the commissioner when it happened, um, made their own bargains uh and I don't presume to know, but you could certainly uh, you could certainly make some educated guesses. I think that because uh, Julian Fantino, when he was a police chief in Toronto, was a tough, no BS kind of enforce the law, law and order kind of guy, and suddenly he turned into this man who was unrecognizable when he was running the OPP in Caledonia. Was happening. Let's make you the wisest person on planet Earth then now. We know that this, right now, it seems anyway, that this is a fight between the traditional band and uh, an elected band. And, and, I mean, this seems like it's not between right now anyway. Uh, the people of Caledonia, they're innocent bystanders in this. So if this is a lot of an internal fight that has spilled out into the public streets, how does this thing get resolved? How does it end 
properly? What, what's the way to fix this? Or is there a proper way to fix this? Well, I'm not sure. I think, uh, I think uh, somewhere it's enshrined that governments can negotiate only with the elected representatives of indigenous people, not with, you know, uh, traditional chiefs like the Confederacy. And yet, back in the day when David Peterson, the former Liberal Premier who'd been brought in by the then current Liberal Premier, McGinty, to act as a mediator, he uh, he's the guy who gave away the birch lands in exchange for getting one of the barricades pulled down. Um, and unless you were in the room with him, you don't know to whom he promised it. Did he promise it to the Confederacy? Did he just make a kind of general, you guys get it? Or did he... Did he promise it to the uh, the Six Nations Elected Council? They each claim that that they are entitled to it. So I, I don't know. I, I would get I would get a senior government official down there and say, "Look, this has nothing to do with the people of Caledonia or the town of Caledonia. Take the barricade down and let's go into a small room and work it out." David Peterson is still with us. It shouldn't be that difficult, should it, for him to be able to say what he promised? It shouldn't be. No. I, that's what I'd do if I were Kathleen Wynne. I'd own David Peterson and say, "Hey, what did you? What did you? What was the deal you made with these folks?" It, it, this this one to me, honestly, Christy, seems a lot less clumsy than the last one. It, it on its face, it seems like this one should be easier to resolve than the last one. Yes, I agree. I think it should, and you know, uh, let's hope let's hope it is. Uh, however, I think it, you know the comparisons to the original occupation are unavoidable. Of course, since they were engineered by one of the players from those days, Peterson, and uh, well, and as you say, I think it's the same hydro tower that's now blocking the road. <laughs> yeah. They just keep oh, it handy, joy. I suppose. Yep. Uh, Christy Blatchford, columnist for the National Post, go read her book. It's called "Helpless: Caledonia's Nightmare of Fear and Anarchy and How the Law Failed All of Us." It's a great read. Christy, thanks for doing this today. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Uh, let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope that we don't actually have to keep talking about this. Let's hope that there can be a resolution. Again, go back to that last question. And Christy answered it. If this current Caledonia protest, which thankfully has not become yet what the last one was, but if this one has resulted from, what are we going to call it? Misunderstanding? Lack of clarity? whatever you want to say, about the deal that ended the last one. Former Premier David Peterson makes a deal to give the Birch lands, and now there is confusion or misunderstanding or an argument about to whom he entrusted those lands, the traditional confederacy or the elected band council, whatever. How difficult could it possibly be to be in touch with David Peterson and say, what did you promise? What did you give? What did you deal? And hopefully, hopefully, he remembers. Hopefully, he knows. Hopefully, there was no confusion at the time that can't be sorted out. But David Peterson is a smart man. Surely, you could call up the former premier and say, what's it? And, and surely, somebody in those negotiations kept some notes, kept some records. How difficult could this be then to say, what exactly did he promise and to whom did he promise it on behalf of Ontario? And then there you go. Now that may not satisfy everybody, but at least it should resolve the problem of protesting the provincial government. 
you would think, right? Which could mean the blockades or the whatever you want to call it, the barricades, whatever, could come down. If, if this is no longer an issue about what the government promised, but about a, a fight, an internal fight between different factions then it doesn't have anything to do with the province of Ontario particularly or with the people of Caledonia. I, I, I don't understand how difficult this could be. I, and I would certainly hope that someone has already been on the phone or had David Peterson in to explain what's going on. If that has not already happened, it might be time. But I assume, like people who are in public office, we can criticize them, we do criticize them, we take shots at them. They're not dumb. Most of them. They're not dumb. They're okay. There's some dumb politicians, I grant you. But most of them are not stupid people. And if you and I and Christy Blatchford can be sitting here on the air talking about this and saying, well, here's one way to try and find the answer. Surely there are 500 people down at Queens Park, either politicians or their staff who have said, uh, that's the answer right there. You, yeah, we, we knew that a week ago. Let's hope, let's hope that someone is actually following this thing up because even though this protest has not reached the intensity, the level, the anger, whatever else of the last one, we don't want it to get there either. We don't want this thing to start dragging out and getting heated up and becoming more difficult. And frankly, I don't think that it's fair at all what's happening to the people of Caledonia. They don't have a dog in this fight. This is nothing to do with them. This is nothing to do with the people of Caledonia. And yet again, they're the ones who are having this happen in their backyard. I don't know if we're going to have to talk to Christy Blatchford again. I'd love talking to her, but hopefully it's not about this. Hopefully this thing can be resolved because someone can quickly figure this thing out. It doesn't seem that difficult, at least to have an answer, whether it's a satisfactory answer to everybody is another question, but to have an answer shouldn't be that difficult. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The only thing that's real. The Tiger Cats play the Red Blacks tomorrow. We thought this was an appropriate song to come in to talk about the 0-7 Tiger Cats versus the 1-6-1 Ottawa Red Blacks. Not exactly a battle of the Titans. But Johnny Cash singing Hurt seemed like a more appropriate song today than the Thai Cats are humming. Rick Zamperin, the voice of optimism for Thai Cat Nation, joins me now. Rick, how are you tonight? I am uh, splendid. Yourself? I am fine. Um, was it you who earlier this week or last week or maybe on the fifth quarter last week referred to this week's game as the Toilet Bowl? Uh, yes. Yes, I think you <laughs> and, did. Uh, and aptly so. That? And aptly so, I must say. That is... Um, 15 games between these two teams, one victory. That is hard to do. At this point of the season, to have two teams facing off that have one victory between them, that is that is something special. As, as CHML listeners will read in my blog tomorrow, the digits 1-13-1 are not the combination to my daughter's high school locker. <laughs> Do you remember, now we're, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, and this I, I am convinced this is not going to happen, but do you remember the 1-17 in 17 season the Ticats had? I do, yes. Uh, that was uh, that was an interesting campaign. I, I remember the, the one victory more so than the 17 losses, uh, because those losses were just... Uh, they blended together just, after a while. Yeah, just horrendous. And it was, 
you know, we, we'd go to old Iverlin Stadium, we'd go up to uh, what was the third floor and their news conferences, and there was no air conditioning. They had, they'd have the fans blaring, and they were, you know, 0 and 8, and Ron Lancaster was up there trying to find the words to, uh, you know, appease the media mass to say, hey, everything is going to be okay. We're just going to go out and, and win a, a football game. And lo and behold, sometime uh, in that season, they actually managed to do it in overtime. And do you remember what happened before they won, though? This, I, If I'm correct, yes. did Saskatchewan not try to kick a game-winning field goal and hit the upright? Yes. And then in overtime, uh, Nelon Green fumbled the football. Yes. The Ticats, uh, big lads, I don't remember who it was, fell on it, probably by accident. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then the, the Ticats kicked the field goal, and, and it was like they had won uh, the Great Cup. Well, I want to say that even though the Ticats are 0-7, uh, I don't get the sense this team, and, and even though the, the, many of their losses have been by very elaborately huge scores, I don't get the sense this team is that bad. I really don't. Like it, At some point, you have to believe this team is going to figure out a way to get better and to get a win or two or three or who knows how many, but th- th- these teams are not comparable, are they? Other than the record right now? Yeah, I would say that you know these two teams couldn't be farther talent-wise uh, than, than anything else. I mean, this is this is a team that yes is zero and seven, and and the record is the record. But let's uh, you know let's uh, uh, give this team at least a check mark in two of its seven games, back to back games uh, against Edmonton, or at least you know two out of the last three weeks against the Eskimos in which uh, they took them early to the, to, to the uh, you know, the final straw and the final kind of plays. Uh, one at Tim Hortons Field in which Mike Riley engineered a really well-executed final drive. You could say well-executed ex- by Edmonton's offense and poorly executed by Hamilton's defense. And then at Commonwealth Stadium, that was a great game. And, and the Ticats had a chance to uh, win it at the end, but uh, ran out of challenge flags and uh, couldn't complete a pass in the end zone at the end of the ball game. Aside from that, you know, it, it has been a disappointing five games that the Ticats have played. But when you compare this team to 2003, it was a bankrupt year. They had players who did not deserve to be in the CFL. Hangers on, guys who should have never made the league in the first place. But, I mean, they were accepting pretty much anyone uh, on that football team. And, and the 2017 version has much more talent. And much more promise, too. There's a lot of young guys on this team that uh, I think hold a a good future in, in the CFL. That said, you can agree with me what I'm going to say next, or you can disagree. And I, I'm really interested to hear where you go on this. But if I'm thinking Friday really, not mathematically, but for all intents and purposes, Friday might be your season. Because if you, you've had a lot of games against the West, but you're in a tough spot now. I mean, you're not out of it because the East is bad, but if you lose to Ottawa and you fall to 0-8, um, you start losing to the Eastern teams and against a team that's won one game, this should be the team that you can build some confidence against. For confidence, for points, for everything else, there is an awful lot riding on this game on Friday. I'll, I'll agree and disagree. I will agree. Um, uh, maybe I'll start with a disagree. I, I don't think that the season is over if they lose tomorrow night. Yes, they'll be zero and eight, uh, and yes, they've had uh, they, they would have lost to Ottawa, obviously, and they already have a loss against Toronto. But they still play uh, the Red Blacks again. They will still play the Argos again. They still have a couple of games towards the end of the season against Montreal. So, I think their destiny will still be in their hands. But on the flip side, and, and the part that I agree with you is this, is that psychologically, if they go 0-8, have the bye week going into Labor Day, they might be thinking to themselves, you know what, guys, this just 
isn't the year. So I think psychologically losing tomorrow will have a greater impact statistically uh, than statistically on uh, you know the fate of this 2017 uh, club. Yeah, and there, look, there's no question that mathematically they could lose the next three or four, mm-hmm. weirdly enough, and still make and it still into the playoffs, it. which... Yeah. Uh, that's a discussion again. We may have that discussion again down the road if that were to happen. If you're 0-10 or 0-11 and you still make the playoffs, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the league may want to rethink a few things. We'll get to that in a minute. But but here's the thing. You can look at Hamilton and you can say, okay, they've got, including this week, they've got seven games left against the East. That's a good thing because the mm-hmm. East teams are obviously very, very poor. So, hey, you know what? Hamilton's had a rough schedule they have been beaten up, but they've had a rough schedule. Now it gets easier for them. They're going to string together a few wins. Or you can look at Ottawa and say Ottawa has lost. Their, yeah, they've only won one, but they've lost by four, by one, by two, by three, by three, and by seven. And Ottawa is due to somehow start to get some wins and pull this thing together. Which one is more likely, do you think? Huh. I, I think that... Uh, the more likely scenario is that Ottawa is going to get out of their funk quicker than the Ticats. I'll say that because at least they have shown game in and game out that they can compete and and steal a victory here and there. Just uh, It just hasn't worked for them this season for whatever reason. It, it's kind of hard to put a finger. I think it's, it's more hard to put a finger on what's happened to Ottawa than the Ticats. Yeah, both teams have injuries. Both teams have had bad bounces. But Ottawa just seems to be in every football game. And I think uh, I was looking at the statistics earlier today that they have uh, points for and against are, are um, minus 15. And the Ticats, I believe the number is minus 143. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that, that paints a picture on how competitive Ottawa is up until this point of the season compared to Hamilton. Hamilton, when they have lost, uh, at least five of the seven games have, have lost really big. So, whether it's the compete level or there comes a point of the game where they just cannot sustain drives or capitalize on their opportunities, something is amiss or awry uh, here in Tigertown. Now, here's where, okay, so, and we talked about this last week, Rick, so we're going to go back to an old topic, but they win this game. Now you have a bye week. You're feeling, I would think, pretty good, even mm-hmm. though you're still going to be 1-7, and seven, but you've got to win now. You're heading into your bye week. And you got Toronto waiting for Labor Day, and, and uh, I mean, honestly, even in the worst years possible, it seems that Hamilton never actually loses on Labor Day. So they'll then beat Toronto, and now you're starting to roll. This is an opportunity for things to get uh, pretty darn good, all things considered, going into September, if they can pick this win up tomorrow. I agree. I mean, you you get a win, and I think even whether they're going into the bye or not, I think just getting a win at this point would be a major boost, whether they're going to a bye or into Labor Day or, or whoever they're going to face next. I think finally getting that victory, they can start believing that they can actually win a ball game. Uh, and until that happens, I think that kind of seed of doubt is going to be, you know, implanted in the in the back of their craniums, and they're always going to be kind of second-guessing themselves, especially as the game is going on, and if they are in a trailing position uh, in a ball game, I think that that kind of self doubt is going to be there. Um, I think the mood would be fantastic. Obviously, if they win and then going into the bye, and if they do win a second game in a row against the Argos on Labor Day, I think that could be the push. And I think the buzz would be all right. The Tie Cats are back. Obviously, depending on how they play in those games, but I think the buzz around town is all right. We're, we're two and seven now. We're past Labor Day. The unofficial start of the CFL season is underway. We got some Eastern teams on the horizon we can make some hay and get back into the race here. And let's face it, I mean, both Montreal and Toronto are, are under 500 as well. 
the key is for the tie cats is not to have all these and, and have meaning a uh, you know H A L V E or H A L F however I spell it. Uh, those games against Eastern teams, if they go five hundred against the East, they're done. They they can't catch up. So that's the positive side. So there is yeah. a possibility that this week could lead to something very positive for the Thai Cats and get things pointed back in the right direction. Let's go the other way now. They lose this game. There are very, very few firings of head coaches in the middle of a season in football anyway. But when they do happen, they very often happen right at the start of a bye week. So you get two weeks to put the new coach's philosophy in place and work on his what he wants to do and everything else. If the Ticats lose this, June Jones has been brought in. A lot of people quietly are thinking there's the coach in waiting. Any chance that Kent Austin is not the head coach when Labor Day rolls around? I would say the odds are are not in in the favor of anyone who's going to bet that he's not going to be the coach. But I will say this. If they go out at home against Ottawa and poop the bet, uh, and Ottawa just railroads them, uh, not to the tune that Calgary is, because I don't think I don't think you, know, you could. But, but yeah, that's kind of once <laughs> in a generation. But let's say it's you know thirty-three to ten, or um, maybe even forty-five to ten, something of that magnitude, where the Tie Cats just they don't perform, they come out flats, they have no emotion. Uh, Ottawa just takes it to them and, and takes them to the woodshed. I think that there could be a case where Kent says, "Okay, maybe it's me. Maybe I do have to you know kind of t- take a step back." June, I know you've been brought in to kind of be like an extra set of eyes and an offensive kind of, uh, you know, a second voice here. Uh, maybe we should just hand the, the reins over to you and, and, and away we go. That's really the only scenario I could see. And even then, I mean, even if they do get lambasted against Ottawa, it would be 11 straight losses dating back to last season. It would be nine straight losses at home. Zach Caleros is starting tomorrow. He would get tagged with a loss, I'm sure. That would be 12 in a row for him, one off the CFL record. I think it, it all depends on how they play if they lose. That Kent would say, all right, maybe it's time for me to take a step back and just be, be the VP of football wants. We mentioned a few minutes ago the idea of the East and how weak the East is. Edmonton right now is in first place, not even by most people's standards the best team in the league, but they're right now in first place. They have seven wins in the West. They have more wins by themselves than all the teams in the East put together have. <laughs> And Saskatchewan, which is in last place in the West, would be tied for first place right now in the East if they moved over here. Rick, why, again, is the East so bad? And why is the East seemingly always so much worse than the West? The only theory that I've heard that I can partly give credit to is that when East teams travel to the West, it's much harder to pick up a victory. The whole time change, it is harder always to win on the road. But in the same sense, at the end of the season, those Western teams do have to come east. I know it's, it's not the same in terms of the time change, but it's still tougher to win on the road, whether it's CFL or the NFL or university football. It is tougher to win on the road. Uh, so that should even out. So that's why I don't give 100% credence to the argument. I do give it a little bit of merit because, hey, I've, you know, I've been on the road and I wasn't even playing a football game and I was tired at the end of the third quarter, <laughs> you know, calling football games. I, I can't imagine playing. Uh, you know, out in B.C. where it feels like 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, But they're professionals. They get paid to do that. I can't really put a finger on it, because when you look at the rosters in the East versus the West, uh, both divisions have great quarterbacks. Both divisions have great head coaches and and GMs and owners. And 
uh, player personnel directors and scouts and, you know, players on the field. I mean, if you took the rosters of all the teams in the West and you said, okay, guys, you are now the East Division, and you put everyone in the East uh, on Western ball clubs, so you're just changing geographically, uh, I think the East would be, uh, you know, as good as the West is. I think they, the, the collection of players, the collection of teams uh, are, are just – uh, that much better. I think it's cyclical. I just we haven't seen the other side of the cycle. I mean, since it's a long circle. Over, yeah, and since the, <laughs> it's, it's a humongous one. It's almost an eclipse, really. We haven't got to the other side. No, nine since, nine times there's been a crossover, right? And none exactly. for the East. Exactly. It's been it's been in effect since '96. We've had nine crossover teams, all from the West. Now, none of those Western teams have gotten to the Great Cup, but still, I mean, not to have one single Eastern team crossover in 21 years of this playoff format. Uh, is mind-boggling, really. Well, on that note, earlier this week, uh, the new commissioner, Randy Ambrosi, said that he was open to at least having a discussion about changing the playoff format to see if there's a different way that things could be done. You wrote a piece, you wrote a commentary that was posted uh, saying, be very careful how you do this. Why? Why? Because I I, I feel very strongly, and I'm not going to get into this today, we've talked about this, I feel very strongly the way to fix this is one division. But you have taken the cautious standpoint. Why? Well, I don't mind, uh, you know, the two division. If you're going to reseed the teams, you know, that's great. You're really going to penalize those teams that don't have great regular seasons, and I think that's fine. But if take this season for example, and you have five Western teams, five out of the six teams in a one division format are Western teams. That sixth team, let's just say, is Toronto gets in. Uh, man, oh man, uh, you have fans in the East at this point of the season in Hamilton and Ottawa that are saying, we don't have a shot uh, in this one playoff format. There's no way we're going to be able to catch, uh, you know, team number six because, you know, we're so far behind. And I'm talking about, you know, with two, three, four games left in the regular season. With the crossover or, or at least the three-team kind of format in each division, I think there's more of a chance for those bottom feeder teams to still be in the hunt with two or three weeks left to go. Um, and that's really the only, the only you know, point I can make in terms of having that one division. And, you know, Granted, uh, the, the fan base in Toronto, uh, you know, they have a few diehard fans, but most of the people in that city don't pay attention to the Canadian Football League because there's so many other things to do. If you had a one-division format and your Toronto Argonauts are always in the bottom six, seven, or eight, or nine, uh, you're not going to pay that much attention to it, uh, you know, even more so. Or you force the front office to do a better job to make your team competitive because the teams in the West have to. Winnipeg, Correct. Saskatchewan, yeah. they have to get better or they're not going to get in. There's no reason why a team in the East can't be forced to get better to get their team in. Why, why make it? Why drag the league down to you, make you come up to make the whole league better? I, I completely agree, but here's, here's the, the sticking point of that, is that what's to say that Toronto isn't doing everything in their power, or Hamilton or Ottawa or Montreal doing everything in their power to make their teams Better. I mean, they've got out and gotten, you know, high caliber quarterbacks and receivers and running backs and defensive players and head coaches, uh, yet the results just aren't there. So I think they're trying. I think all the stuff that they are trying isn't as successful, obviously, as what is happening in the West. I mean, let's point to Mark Cressman and Jim Pop, two guys that have been ultra successful in this league. Uh, we point to a team like uh, Edmonton or Jason Moss. Uh, you know, is a, is a rookie quarterback. I mean, if, if you had your brothers, I think we'd all pick Mark Cressman and Jim Pop to lead our team as opposed to a guy like uh, Jason Moss. No, no discredit to him, but I think the fact of the matter is, you know, the history speaks for itself, and those two individuals are, uh, you know, well uh, acclaimed in what they do and, and, and uh, loved by their uh, 
uh, by their players and their front office staff. So I think it's just a matter of uh, you know being in the cycle. And it's just, as I said, unbelievable that this cycle has not come around. Tomorrow night, after the game, the fifth quarter will be on the air. If the fifth quarter was a football team, it would be the West Conference. All the other post-game shows you might listen to are the Eastern Conference teams. The fifth quarter is the gold standard of post-game shows. Rick will be on as soon as that final whistle, buzzer, gun, flag goes, whatever they do these days. Uh, Rick, thanks for doing this. We will be listening tomorrow night. Anytime. Should be fun. Thanks, Scott. Uh, we will see. Highly entertaining, the fifth quarter has been lately. Take a listen after the game tomorrow night. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Last night on the show... If you were listening last night, right near the end, I said, I have some homework for you. I never do homework. This is not exactly high school class. But I gave you homework last night. I said, I want you, if you get the chance, before tonight's show, to watch the movie Icarus. It's on Netflix. It's a new documentary. And basically, the short description of this, and I'm probably not going to do it justice, but if you ever saw the movie Supersize Me, remember the one about the guy who just ate at McDonald's for a month to see what would happen to his body? Well... This one, kind of along those lines, it's a guy who was a recreational but competitive bike racer who decided he was going to, on film, so it was nothing really cheating, with the guidance of doctors, he was going to embark on a protocol of steroid and testosterone and doping enhancement to try and improve his times to show on film, to prove the impact and the effect of doping to prove how effective doping can be in sports and on top of that to prove how easy it is to beat the system he was going to do all this he was going to beat his times he was going to get much much better show how it works and show that he didn't have to get caught he was basically going to be a human steroid guinea pig but accidentally as the movie goes along as he is doing this he meets gets introduced to the scientist who ran the sochi back in the sochi olympics the sochi anti-doping lab that was later described by the World Anti-Doping Agency as really a front for an elaborate government-sponsored Russian doping program. This wasn't stopping drug use. This was, according to WADA, this was a place that was set up to make the Russians able to fully dope. So it was, It's a shocking, startling movie. We knew about this because there was a report by a Canadian guy, McLaren, that came out that told us this, but to see it all explained and to hear the voice of the guy who was behind it was shocking. It is literally every single thing that is wrong with sports. Well, Jesse Lumsden, everyone knows Jesse Lumsden, Bob Sledder, former CFL player, former McMaster Marauder, son of Neil Lumsden, brother of uh, of the Amazing Race, all this stuff. I mean, Jesse Lumsden's got so many connections around here. Everybody knows him. But Jesse was watching this. Jesse saw Icarus. Jesse had lived through this stuff. Uh, and from what I've read, from seeing a bunch of stories online, Jesse was equally shocked at what he saw. Maybe outraged, Jesse. I don't know. Um, Jesse Lumsden joins me now. Jesse, how are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. How about yourself? Excellent. Glad to see you're back racing again. I know you took some time off, and I know you've been back, but with uh, with the Olympics coming up, good to see you back on the sled. Yeah, it's good to be back. Took two years off to uh, start figuring out my transition and uh, came back last season and had to knock some rust off, but looking <laughs> forward to uh, a real good Olympic season and Olympic Games. I was trying to find the best word to describe your response as I was reading it here, and I don't know, outraged or irate or something. I mean, basically, you came out and said unequivocally, based on what you saw in this movie, that Russian athletes should be banned from the next few Olympics. Is that your position? That's that's what I said, and um, 
it, you know, I, I did watch the movie and I read both McLaren reports um, and, and, and spent a lot of time talking with many, many people about it. And uh, outraged, I say more just more ex- extreme frustration, uh, especially now that I think I'm happy that this came out because it has been quiet for a while. Uh, we've been distracted with all sorts of other news going on around the world in the sporting community and outside of the sporting community. And I think and I hope with six months to the next Olympics, this creates a bit of a stir uh, and, and draws some attention back towards the IOC and WADA in hopes that they put the pedal to the floor a little bit on figuring out a solution what sort of punishment's going to be handed down to the Russian um, Federation? Because nothing has been done yet. A fine isn't good enough if they're going to do a fine. Oh, well, and sporadic. Uh, uh, There's uh, been sporadic uh, bans, but not to everybody. But not everybody. And this, because this is a nation-sponsored doping program that has been uncovered, it needs to be a nation, a nationwide ban. And unfortunately, with all you know, punishments, there's collateral damage. Now, in the IAAF World Championships that just happened, athletes who proved beyond reasonable doubt that they were not involved or trained in Russia or not involved with anything to do with Russian coaches were able to compete still under the IAAF flag. Now, I, I believe there's a lot of athletes, there's a lot of people in Russia. I really believe that there's athletes who are not part of this program. And I believe that is another step that needs to be taken into consideration. But you need to be able to prove beyond reasonable doubt because right now there's too much evidence supporting so many, not only medals won, but doping tests tampered with and um, just blocked from the Mm. testing protocols in place. Well, I mean, I heard uh, some people say, especially before the Rio games, because this is really when this thing first really came to light and there was discussion whether the whole Russian contingent should be banned. And they did. They banned the track team and I think one or two other um, specific teams, but not the whole contingent. But one of the things said was it would be really unfair to ban everybody because only those who have tested positive should be banned because you don't want to have collateral damage. Problem is, Jesse, if you've got a government-sponsored system that is specifically preventing positive tests, how do you know who actually tested positive? It becomes ridiculous. Exactly, and that is a big loophole because as an athlete, you are uh, responsible for what gets put into your body. Um, once you you know, provide a urine or blood sample and seal it, you are entrusting that to the water representatives or whatever uh, national uh, doping protocol representatives may be uh, taking your samples. For In Canada, it's the Canadian Centre of Ethics and Sport. In the United States, it's USADA. In Russia, it's RUSADA. Um, so then it goes to a WADA certified testing lab, which we have one in Canada in Laval. And obviously there is one in Sochi and Moscow, which they were able to uh, utilized to their benefit to then taint or switch or corrupt uh, any because you give two, two samples I should say you give an A sample and a B sample A sample that gets tested B sample gets stored for future testing uh, because they can test up to ten years now uh, from those samples so ten years from now the 2017 samples we will we'll go back and get randomly tested with new tests that are able to detect new metabolites which stay in the system for longer that the new, that the tests are happening can't detect right now. 
Um, but that's all that happens after it's done out of the athlete's hands. So you can't really hold them accountable. That being said, if it is a statewide program, the athlete is in the know of what's happening. Just so for those people who didn't follow the McLaren report or haven't seen this yet, and again, I, I would encourage you in the strongest way possible to go watch Icarus. It's on Netflix. It's fantastic. It's two hours and one minute, I think. It's worth your time. But the, the, what happened here when Jesse says the, the, the lab, the Sochi lab, the water lab they were able to use to their advantage, as you watch this movie, there is actually on the same grounds, basically, a KGB office building 100 yards away, and it gets so cloak and dagger that there was a hole cut into the wall of the lab where the testing was done and people would bring the clean test that was done ahead of time and when the lab was sort of cleaned out and there was one doctor left they would start passing clean urine in and dirty urine out. i mean this is something like out of a i don't know a, a, a spy book somehow i mean it really is unbelievable that this happened but you're here's the thing tell me i want to get to more of that in a second but jesse just so people understand you are training to be, well, you've been an Olympic bobsledder, but you're training to go back to be competing again for Canada. Tell me a typical day for you to try to get better. What's a, what's a training day for you right now? Sure. Um, our training days are starting uh, a little bit later than previous, but our training days start at 10 a.m. And on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm home by 5, 530, because it includes um, our warm-up, our sprint session, our in-ice house pushing session, which is our technical work, and then we have a lift after, and then we usually have our cool-down and our therapy. Um, the hours that we're putting in right now are, are consistent with any full-time job that's out there. Um, I'm, on, I'm currently on a nutrition plan uh, where I'm following certain caloric intake every single day, uh, including my supplements, which are we always have, you know, making sure that we are getting supplements from companies that are reputable and that are branded as uh, NSF or third-party tested or batch tested. So a lot of supplements out there, if you just go into any sort of -of run-of-the-mill supplement store, can contain banned substances. Um, So we have to be very, very careful, even with the supplements that we take. Uh, And then, you know, monitoring our sleep and any sort of tool that, uh, like, working in floating flotations, sensory deprivation float tanks on recovery days, um, helping with meditation, you know, doing everything we possibly can to get every single, you know, edge that we can under the under the rules because our our, our sport comes down to the hundredth of a second. I was going to say and that. So when, when you're doing all this, if you have a great, I don't know, a great month, if you have put in the best month of work and everything, you've, you've followed your nutrition and you've done all the work and you got your sleep and everything else, how much time could you possibly shave off your best? What are you, all this work is going into cutting how much time off your run? So for a perfect example for me as a crewman, it's the push is the most important part of my job. And we get tested in an individual push every year. So let's go back to the 2014 games. In the 2012-13 season, my personal best was uh, 4.97 second push, 4 seconds, 97 hundredths over a 50-meter push. Um, we worked over 1,200 hours over the next offseason, and for me to be able to push a 4.95, so two hundredths of a second. Okay, and the reason I ask all this, uh, there is a reason for this, and it, it may sound like it's completely offline, but 
during the part of this film earlier on, and again, go watch Icarus, but during the earlier part when he, when the filmmaker is before he's met the Russian guy who's behind all this and the film goes off on a different direction, when he's still being the human guinea pig for doping, he is taking all these drugs and in the span of, what was it, two months, two and a half months, he is able to improve his output, his power output by 20 or 25%. And so you're looking at putting in 1,200 hours to shave off two one-hundredths of a second to get better, and you inject 25 cc's or units or whatever that it is of testosterone and human growth hormone and everything else every day. Uh, It sure sounds like, based on his experience, you could, Jesse, you could really, really improve your time a lot faster, which I would, I'm guessing, I'm understanding why someone like you and other people who are doing this are ticked off about what's happening. You're putting in all these thousands of hours and someone who just injects some stuff into their butt can shave a whole lot more time off there and, and shoot right past you. Well, and, and, and people and those types of people, you know, they're still working their butts off as well. They just have a significant advantage that doesn't fall under the rules and regulations of how we're supposed to be competing. And what bothers me the most about this in, entire situation is um, we, have a, we have a Canadian weightlifter who has been bumped up over two different Olympics, three medal spots, I believe, and because of positive tests. Christine Girard. Christine, exactly. So the thing with Christine is, is that somebody shows up to the airport and hands her her new medal and then gets back on a plane and disappears. What she doesn't, what she never gets back is the opportunity to celebrate that victory, that victory, that medal with her family, friends, loved ones, everybody who supported her. What she's lost on is the opportunities for whatever she wants to do after she's done uh, competing and leveraging that victory and leveraging that hard work and leveraging that, 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 that victory. And, and, and everything's just taken away. And she's um, one of the ones who's lucky because they've actually caught the people, so she gets the medal. Exactly, she's able to she's able to hold on to an item that you know most of, most people that I know that have won medals they end up in a sock drawer. Most people that are competing aren't competing for a medal; they're competing to you know, as I like to put it, and my goal is to sing the national anthem at the Olympics. The medal, the actual piece of metal, is an afterthought. It's the, it's the it's the standing on the podium. It's the you know. The, all the joy that comes with the the work that you put in with your teammates and your support staff and your coaches and all for that one moment, and that's all stripped away. Sure, you get that medal, but you ask most athletes, it's not really about the tangible medal. It's about the the whole experience, the, all the sacrifice and all the hours that you put in to for for that one moment to really let it all go and to celebrate all of that culminating in, 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 in that singular moment. Hmm. Hmm. And she'll never get to experience that. Jesse, in Sochi, uh, I hate to bring this up, but um, considering Sochi is where this lab was and where this whole story, this whole movie points to that, I think if I recall correctly that the scientist who was the Russian guy behind this, I think he said 50% of the Russian medals in the Olympics that he had helped, if I remember the, the, from the movie, that he said that was directly related to the doping. Yeah. Uh, in Sochi, Russia won the two-man and the four-man bobsleigh that you were competing in. Uh, do you yeah. believe that those guys were cheating? 
I, that, this is where it gets very difficult because I never, I don't want to point the finger and say um, these guys were for sure cheating. And do you wonder? Is, do you at least I, wonder? Well, absolutely, you wonder. You have to wonder. With everything that's come out through the McLaren reports, everything that's been proven, everything that's uh, you know been shown on the, the, the movie Icarus, you have to wonder. And you know this is the only time you'll hear me say this. Thank God we didn't finish fourth. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, you're Joanne no, Millar if you finish fourth in that position. Uh, Joanne Millar lived through that. Jo- the swimmer exactly. with uh, exactly. Michelle De Bruin, the Irish swimmer who was later found to have doped. Not necessarily in those Olympics, but there's lots of suspicions. But Joanne Millar should have an Olympic medal right now, for sure. And it's it's that you know Sam Edney came fourth in uh, the luge event, and you know he posted that on Twitter, and and, and that would be just. I can't even describe how that would feel because, you know, you, you, you come forth, you're already so close, but then you find out all this information and how are you supposed to feel, but completely, you know, with, a, you know, how much faith have you lost in the system or even the Olympic movement or why you're even doing this? Because mm. if your goal is to, you know, stand on the podium representing your country, whether it's winning the medal, whether it's singing the national anthem, whatever it is, and that's robbed. Like, how can you feel not just completely robbed? With all the amount, with the time that athletes put in and the effort and the sacrifice that goes into this in amateur athletics, we're not walking away with paychecks after every race. This is, this is, this is a, like a, this is a passion project in, you know, in not so many words. It's, it's a, it's a choice we've made because we're trying to pursue something at the end of this and um, walking away, we're not walking away with, you know, stacked bank accounts uh, like professional athletes are. It's, and to have that moment taken away from you possibly because somebody or an an entire nation went to an unethical route. It's, it's gut wrenching. I imagine, I imagine that Jesse Lumsden is not the only one though who is steamed about this. I, when Icarus came out, and it's been on Netflix now for what, about a week and a half or two weeks, when, when you all showed back up at the at training the day after everybody watched it, what was the discussion? It was, have you seen Icarus? Are you effing kidding me? Okay, I can't talk about this because it's just going to get everybody too fired up. But it's, that was the general consensus from everybody. And, it's just, and, then it, and then it becomes, why isn't anything being done yet? Because, again, you're focused on your own training. The McLaren report came out. Okay, we got to, you know, WADA and IOC are going to take care of this. It's going to be, you know, punishment's going to be dealt. They'll, uh, and we can just keep focused and, and, and working. We're working towards the podium right now. So we can't let these distractions just completely consume us. But it, it was, again, one of those things that it's just your jaws on the floor. Well, in a couple of months, few months, more than a couple, a few months, you're going to be in South Korea competing against the Russians, um, if they are allowed to compete, because there's still discussions going on about what's going to happen, but if they line up on the bobsleigh track and you are going head-to-head with them, do you have full confidence? Do you have 100% confidence you're facing a fair fight? Or, again, will you be wondering what's going on? You know what? At this point, who cares? We're going to keep doing what we're doing. We have a a good plan in place. Uh, Our team is healthy. Uh, we're working on acquiring some uh, some new equipment and some new some new runners to, to to slide on this season. Everybody's working hard. Everybody's foaming at the mouth. It's you know 
we're going to use it. If anything, we're just using it as motivation to keep working hard and keep getting better and better and better. And if those, if those, if nations and athletes want to go down that road, it's not going to be enough because Canada is coming in, and I'm talk, I'm speaking on behalf of the entire Canadian Olympic team. We're coming in full steam ahead, ready to go, ready to win medals, and that's our only focus because that can be the only focus. As soon as we start thinking about anything else, it's going to affect our own performance. So at the end of the day, we just got to keep working hard. You know, Becky Scott, who is is a member of the WADA Athletes Committee, spoke up. Um, other people are speaking up about it. And now it's time to put that aside. We've said our piece. You know, we have some unfavorable comments coming our way on social media. Push it aside. Get to the gym tomorrow and keep working hard and keep working towards that goal because that's all we can really, you know, do that's in our control to, to, to get better and get closer to achieving our goals. It's the right answer. I got to tell you, I, I didn't know that's what you were going to say, but it's the right answer. And uh, listen, Jesse, I will let you go. I always appreciate chatting with you. I always appreciate the time. And we are, uh, I don't know how much we see in the World Cup circuit beforehand, but we certainly are looking forward to seeing your race in, uh, in Korea. Well, thanks. Yeah, you'll be, uh, you'll be able to see the races on CBC uh, for our, our World Cup races leading up to the Olympics. So I encourage you to check it out. And I'll be the one in the spandex in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I'm glad I won't be. Uh, yeah. Jesse Lumsden, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, my pleasure. That is, uh, go, uh, I'm telling you again, got to go to break. Watch Icarus. I-C-A-R-U-S. It's on Netflix. If you get Netflix, watch Icarus. It will blow your mind when you see the level of cheating that is outlined in this movie. You don't think sports can be this, you, you hear about cheating, you hear about Ben Johnson, you hear about the, it's, you can't believe what can be going on, and what the clean athletes, and we don't even have time to talk about it right now, but what the clean athletes have to compete with when you see not only the impact that doping can actually have, the filmmaker, the impact it had on him is remarkable, but then you realize what's going on, it's, it's, it's stunning. I would, I would highly encourage it. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.